0: Greetings, fellow time travellers. Always great to have you with me as we journey together through space and time. Before we get started in today's uh, journey to the latest destination, a huge thank you uh, is owed to everyone who supports this podcast by joining me on my patreon.com site. Uh, by signing up there, becoming a member, it's the financial support that helps Paul and I make this podcast series. There are benefits to membership you get exclusive content a weekly question and answer video with me competitions with prizes and first look at whatever monologue i've I've put together during the week if you're not a member but you'd like to join uh, just go to patreon.com search for me by name it's easily done and you have to part with a little bit of cash Uh, you can join monthly or annually It is cheaper if you pay for a year up front. I'll leave it up to you. But I'd love to see you there. You'll be part of an extended family of people fascinated by history, questions to ask. It's an extended family of like-minded people. Now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The Dark Chamber the camera obscura. This strange magic may have been known and exploited even by our Paleolithic ancestors. Aristotle, Ibn al-Hitham, Leonardo da Vinci, all in their own way explored the mysteries and workings of that strange magic. In the 19th century, the first ghostly images start to appear, and the term photography is coined And with this new power, we are confronted, for the first time, by our very nature and its consequences, like never before. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. Last week, we travelled back in time to 1836 to meet the most dangerous man in Britain. Where are we this week? Hello again, Paul, and all of you fellow time travellers. Well, this week our journey is taking us to France in the early 19th century, as science and invention are ramping up and pushing the boundaries of human understanding. It's 1839, and we're with the inventor Louis Daguerre, who is taking the first photograph of human beings. We're in France were in Paris, I suppose. This is a story, this is a a love letter that as I stumbled upon it, really, and as I started to write it, I knew there was something important that I was almost fumbling for in the mist. And then it, well, it came into focus, so to speak. And I knew, I I sort of validated, I had known without knowing why there was something important about Uh, the discovery of photography. If France is the where, the who is Louis Daguerre, and anyone who's a bit interested in photography and the beginnings thereof, the Daguerreotype is the name given us a catch-all given to the earliest photographs. And it's named for this individual who pioneered or helped to pioneer the technique. In the Love Letter we've contemplated the birth of writing and how for the longest time people just spoke and had oral histories and whatever and then, lo and behold, people started making marks in clay or in other uh, materials, thereby making permanent that which had previously been, well, I suppose ephemeral. And photography did something closely allied to that in the same way that writing lets you reach out and grasp an idea out of the air, a bit like a butterfly, and pin it to a board, the written word enabled that with ideas. But photography did something similar with reality. It enabled us to take little bits of rea- little bits of reality and keep them. There's a long backstory to what becomes photography. It's fair to say that we don't know how long ago people noticed what has come down to us as as the camera obscura effect. Camera obscura, well, it's Latin and it means the dark chamber. And it's, it's a natural phenomenon. By the 15th century, for example, Leonardo da Vinci was exploiting the camera obscura effect. He didn't invent it. He learned about it If you make a small hole in a wall directly opposite a brightly illuminated object and that hole goes through into a dark room, a a windowless room or a room with the windows blocked out, an upside down version of that appears on the wall directly opposite. Um, This is also known as the it's it's also how you take advantage of the of the very simple technology of the pinhole camera exactly the same thing, but what what Leonardo was doing well it was very useful for an artist like him because you could put a, a canvas or a piece of paper in the way of the projected image and then you could trace it. So if if he was interested in the you know the brightly illuminated frontage of a beautiful building, it would project through. A little hole in a wall appear on the on on a wall inside the dark chamber, and he could trace it, copy it, and you know, and and, the, and thereby, you know, take advantage of of a, of a simple and accurate way to render an image. But as I say, Leonardo did not invent the technique. Ancient Greeks, including Aristotle, had written about it, you know, thousands of years before. A tenth century. Arabian physicist called Ibn al-Haytham. His name was rendered into Al-Hazen in Europe. And he had written about it, this exactly the same principle. And we know that Leonardo was aware of the writings of Al-Hazen. So let's say he possibly got it from him. And we've also in the Love Letter to the World, we've remembered the Paleolithic cave art from... 30,000 years ago, where people were down in the darkness. And it's it's been suggested by some audacious scholars that in some circumstances it may have been the case that those ancient artists exploited some vestige of the same technique. Now, I'm not so sure about that, but if you read into it, you'll you'll probably stumble across the same sources as I did. And there, there are reasons that are complicated and slightly involve ways of imagining that people 30,000 years ago did something similar. It's like a strange sort of magic, isn't it? It absolutely is. If anyone's ever when I I grew up in Dumfries and there was a a camera obscura in Dumfries it was in what had been a windmill. The sails were long gone but in this tall tower of a building there was a bit of apparatus exploited whereby there was a, a, a mirror in the ceiling that could be manipulated with ropes and it reflected down onto a shallow white dish the image from outside was projected and you could see the outside. You stand in the darkness and you could see the countries and 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 they could spin the mirror and you could look 360 degrees. And there's a camera obscura in Edinburgh, right at the top of the Royal Mile, just before you go into the castle on the right hand side, there's a camera obscura there, does exactly the same thing. And even 21st century people, you can't help but be mesmerised by the effect. Even though we know all about television and internet and all of that, the camera obscura effect is magical. It's an amazing thing. It's exactly the same that's exploited by pinhole camera. Now, people of a certain age maybe remember doing this as a science experiment at school. And you literally just need a box, like a shoebox with a lid on it. You make a hole in it. And with photographic paper on the back, you just expose, you just open up the hole, you take a cover off it, let light in for a a period of time. It has a chemical reaction with the light-sensitive paper on the back and, you know, bish-bosh, a bit of developing solution and you've got a photograph. And you can't believe, the first time you see it done, you can't believe it's that simple. Some of that brilliant early science that some of us got to do, maybe they still do it at school, I don't know. The human eye let's not forget, works in exactly the same way where the pupil, the pupil in your eye is the pinhole, you know, it can be smaller and bigger depending on the intensity of the light and the retina at the back of your eye takes it and it, it actually appears upside down. Once that information goes back along the optic nerve and into the brain to get processed, in the same way that a photograph gets processed at the chemists in the old days and you went to Boots to get the photographs developed. It's your brain that develops the image and flips it so that you see it the right way up. But your eye is a pinhole camera. So, Camera Obscura, which is just the name given to it by us and the pinhole camera technology, it's been around and known about and stumbled across by countless individuals for thousands of years. Under certain circumstances, it would happen without people doing anything. It would happen accidentally if the right set of circumstances lined up. But it was only in 19th century that photography was invented because photography is about the means by which you make the image permanent, really. And photograph means, well, it means drawing with light You know, photo is photon, light, light, and graph, it's writing with light. That's a lovely, it's almost poetic that a photograph is a drawing, drawing with light. And the oldest photograph or the oldest image made permanent, let's say, to be prosaic about it, was in 1826 or maybe 1827, not quite clear, and it was achieved or obtained or done, taken by a French inventor called Joseph Nicephore Niepce, And it's not the best photograph in the world. It's quite gloomy, foggy. It looks a bit foggy. It looks as if he's taken a photograph in the mist. But that's, well, it, it's partly to do with the way in which the image has decayed over time. But also, anyway, the primitive nature of his technique. He had stumbled across the use of a, a chemical known by the quite beautiful name, Bitumen of Judea. It's light sensitive, it reacts. It reacts in the presence of light. And with essentially a pinhole camera pointing out of an upstairs window. He was a wealthy man and he had an estate in Burgundy and from an upstairs window in one of the buildings on the estate he, he just pointed it out at the at the fairly unremarkable scene in front of him. And there it is, that, so that taken in 1826 and it's it's the first photograph, as we would call it. He also stumbled into the path of, came into partnership with a fellow Frenchman called Louis Daguerre. And, and well, one way or another, it's Daguerre's name that has actually been fixed in relation to that nascent technology. Niepce died, died young. And Daguerre carried on, and he developed what has come down to history as the daguerreotype photographic process. And when it comes to, say, the moment that we're focusing on in the love letter to the world this time, it happens in 1839, so a few years after Niepce's first image. And Daguerre took himself to the Place de la République in Paris, and he was facing south, ...towards the Boulevard du Temple... ...and he had his camera set up... ...and he took a covering off the lens... ...and the rest is history... ...and the, the image that he created that day in 1839... ...you'd know it was Paris... ...you can tell by the architecture... ...but what would be an otherwise... ...flat I suppose... ...or unemotive work... ...it's the presence... ...down in the left hand corner of the image... ...of two people... The first people to have their photograph taken, well, inadvertently, it's a shoe shine boy, and his customer, so it's, it's somebody shining shoes for a coin, and whatever individual man had stopped to have his shoes shined, and it's made, the image is made haunting, by the knowledge of his account of it all that there were people, there were more people around in the square, in the place, but. They drifted through the, the frame, you know, he just was framed up on the on the Place de la Republique and he wasn't telling anybody what to do. But other people would have been moving through it. People walking would have drifted through. But they evaded capture <laughs> like thieves in the night, you know, they just drift through because of the relative insensitivity of the what he was using as 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 photographic paper was actually silver iodide chemical on a copper sheet. And it was relatively insensitive compared to photographic paper of a more modern type. And he needed a ten minute exposure. Which is to say that having exposed the having taken the cover off, he had to let light flood into the camera for ten minutes to generate the image. And it just so happened that the only people that were static for the ten minutes were the shoeshine boy and his customer. So they're fixed but we know that other people just ghosted through that image photons bouncing off of them but they weren't static long enough so they're they're gone so it's it's the knowledge that in that in that photograph you're looking at uh we know that people were drifting around the square but the only the only individuals that were static were the two the shoeshine and his customer and i would say that it's a, it's a moment of the utmost importance because it's the advent of an an, an entirely new way of Capturing and keeping moments Trapping them for all time Like, you know, bugs in amber You know, the Jurassic Park effect You know how the mosquito gets caught in the resin of the pine tree And then the resin turns to to amber And the mosquito or whatever else is there Well, the, the advent of photography meant that a moment of reality Could be trapped in the same way And it's profound when you think about it, because it means it meant that for the first time our species could be confronted by proof of our nature, proof of the reality of our nature in a way that had never troubled us previously. And you know, obviously, there's there's every way in which photography has been exploited and, and used ever since, but in the context of history. One thing to think about is the way in which mistreatment, wrongdoing is amongst what has been captured by photography. We know that our species would be mistreating each other in every conceivable way since the beginning. Murder, cruelty, slavery, all manner of mistreatment. We know that. But before the photograph these things just drifted away they happened and they were gone without visible proof from the very earliest days you know the monks the christian monks who had who had learned to write they were writing about viking invasion and they, and they wrote about other they wrote about battles so there's a written record before that there was just a spoken record that people remembered that terrible things had happened and of course there were, in the intervening period, paintings and drawings, but those are subjective. You know, if you're right, if you're a painting of a, a critical moment in a battle, it's only subjective. It's a work of, well, imagination informed by someone's account of what happened, but it's not actually a literal revelation of the moment. Photographs keep reality in a unique way, or a, a way that was unique up until the development of other technologies and it confronts us with our true nature. Um, I mean, for example, we've we've considered slavery in the love letter to the world what a stain it is on humanity. Well, there have been slaves forever. The black, white and brown people have been owned by black, white and brown people. Well, we can't identify a time when that didn't happen. Um, We know that There's been torture and mistreatment of every kind. But for good or ill, it's only we of later days, latter days, who've been caught out, you might say. It's as though, you know, in a game of musical chairs, you know, the music stops and everyone sits down, except there's never enough chairs so somebody gets left standing. Well, effectively, the advent of photography meant that the music stopped And we have been left standing to answer for our sins. A record of our actions that's undeniable, made by the way in which photons react with light-sensitive chemicals and paper. And so we're left with no option but to look those we have wronged in the eye. We've all seen the old faded sepia, black-and-white images of African slaves on the plantations in the southern states of the United States of America. Now, those were the first slaves whose existence we couldn't deny. We know that the Ottomans had slaves and the and the Romans had slaves and the Greeks had slaves and the Egyptians had slaves and so on and so on and so on. And the Aztecs had slaves and the, we know that. But we alone have been confronted with with those that were wronged by our society and by our civilizations. And I've been fascinated for a long time by in Native American culture and history, and of course there are photographs of of the Native Americans, those that we used to call Indians, who were well invited or or perhaps induced to pose for photographs in their finery with their feathers and their and the rest of their their paraphernalia, and we've got photographs of the early Maoris that were encountered in New Zealand and the, and the Australian Aborigines that came into the path of the of the Europeans. And I find that profoundly affecting the way in which a photograph holds up to us, like a mirror, our nature. And so it's thanks to, you know, the romantically named bitumen of Judea and silver iodide on copper and the rest, that means that ever since we have not been able any longer to deny who we are and what we have always been. An ominous spectre is haunting Europe Right across the continent From Paris to Milan Budapest and Berlin Voices are ringing out for change In 1848 A portentous document That strikes fear into the hearts Of Europe's ruling classes is published Anonymously Composed in German printed in London and just 23 pages long. It calls for the proletariat to rise up, overthrow the oppressors and bring about worldwide revolution. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site, Why Don't You?, be great to see you there. I have a new website address, an easy one for this complicated time of ours. It's neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for series, merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies and all the rest. My Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd that they really ought to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios. And the graphics? Well, they're by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.